I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea and what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition, sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Welcome to the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely. Thank you for taking the time to have a little listen today. I have another really interesting interview to share with you today. Uh, Recently, I got to speak with Dr. Gregory Kelly. And yes, he's the first guy on the podcast that I interviewed. So you know, it's going to be good. He is the director of product development at Neurohacker Collective, a naturopathic physician, and the author of the book Shapeshift. With extensive experience in both natural medicine and nutrition, Dr. Greg Kelly has been an influential figure in the field. He has served as the editor of the journal Alternative Medicine Review and taught advanced clinical nutrition, counseling skills, and doctor-patient relationships at the University of Bridgeport College of Naturopathic Medicine. Dr. Kelly has also published hundreds of articles on natural medicine and nutrition, contributed three chapters to the textbook of natural medicine, and has over 30 journal articles indexed on PubMed. His areas of expertise include nootropics, that's brain supplements, anti-aging and regenerative medicine, weight management, sleep, and the chronobiology of performance and health. Additionally, he's helped develop some rare and powerful compounds that have scientifically shown senolytic activity, Don't worry, listen to the episode. We talk about senolytics at length and which have a wider range of mechanisms than existing senolytic supplements available. So this is an episode for my science-minded listeners. We go deep on the science. It's such an interesting conversation around aging and longevity and being able to pull the levers of of living well, no matter what your age is. I will be speaking about this more on the podcast going forward as I'm getting more interested in longevity medicine. But Dr. Greg Kelly is one of those pioneers in supplementation in particular, things that help with the uh, aging process, life experience as I like to call it. So pen and paper ready, lots of information here, and be sure to check out the show notes where the Neurohacker Collective has given my listeners a coupon code for any supplements you might decide you wish to order from them. So that said, I can't wait for you to hear about hear this episode. 
if you want the video of uh, Dr. Kelly and I having a conversation and the videos of all the interviews I do, check out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Dr. Fiona Lovely. And all of those are available to you there. So without further ado, here's Dr. Kelly and I having a conversation. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hi again. I just want to take a moment to tell you about a webinar I am hosting on women's brain health at midlife. Now, this is the third time I have offered this uh, particular training. It's very popular, and I'm pretty excited about it. Um, As always, I just think this is such critical information for women. So let's get it out there. The class is free. It's going to be about an hour. It's on September 9th at noon Mountain Time. And you can sign up for that Women's Brain Health webinar uh, on my website at drlovely.com under the Offerings tab. Or you can pop into the show notes below and there will be a link for you to sign up. I can't wait to see you there. I'm really excited about the information I'm sharing this year. It just keeps evolving. It just keeps getting better and better. And um, this is my own journey with brain health and my own journey uh, with a family history of both Alzheimer's and dementia and also symptomatic perimenopause where Um, There were days my brain wasn't working so well. So this is what I have done myself to correct the problem or um, and to share, really. And this is a big topic. I talk about it a lot in the office. So I know it's an important one for women. I'd love to see you there again. Pop down to the show notes below and there will be a registration link. And yes, if you can't make it live, although please try to make it live. It's always so much more fun for me when people are there live listening to the content. Um, if you can't make it live, we'll send out a replay. So share it with your friends and family. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every day in the morning to break my fast. It makes me feel like I'm doing something good for my body, that I'm covering my nutritional bases. This simple daily habit allows me to cover those nutritional bases no matter what the day brings. Oh my gosh, because we never know what the day is going to bring. AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement that delivers comprehensive nutrients to support whole body health, replacing your multivitamin, probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash Fiona Lovely. That's drinkag1.com slash Fiona Lovely. You can find the link in the show notes. Check it out. Okay, welcome to the podcast. Dr. Gregory Kelly, this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'm so excited about this conversation, just doing a little research about you and reading your bio. And I'd love for you to tell us about your naturopathic journey. What brought you to the field of naturopathic medicine? So the um, I'm going to make this pretty brief if I can, but I started out after university time period as an officer in the U.S. Navy. 
and served about five and a half years active duty. This was in the, the mid to late 80s under um, Reagan's years as the president of the US. And um, towards the end, I had to give a fairly long, I guess, notice that I wasn't going to re-up. So I had about 10 months to a year that I had said, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to take new orders. I'm going to get out. What am I going to do next? And what I had decided on is I'm just going to be a gypsy. I'll get rid of everything, have a backpack and just kind of wander around. And to be able to do that, it occurred to me, I should be able to do a bare minimum of self-care things, you know, like do things to stay healthy. So I wouldn't get sick, you know, be able to do things. If I did get sick, that would be, you know, kind of, um, you know, maybe better suited for things now we would think of as natural medicine. And so I started just on my own to read books that, you know, introduced me to things like your background, chiropractic care, um, acupuncture, herbs. I'd already been interested in um, both exercise and nutrition um, from earlier in the Navy. And so it really all merged together there. And when I was um, like transitioning between the Navy time period and the Gypsy time period, I was in Hawaii and stumbled upon naturopathic doctors and thought, wow, how cool. They're doing all these things I've been reading about all in one profession. So I zigged. And instead of, you know, like becoming a long-term Gypsy and wandering the earth, <laughs> I went to naturopathic school and, um, you know, started that in 93, graduated in 96, and have been, you know, in the uh, health field ever since. So I, it, I guess like long story short, it started off because of like this very selfish need to want to be healthy and stay healthy as I, you know, um, moved around the world. Wow. So we all have our journey about, you know, what it is we need in our lives and who it is that has influenced us. And you, you found those naturopathic doctors in Hawaii. It was a chiropractor for me when I was a kid. So I, um, I love those early life influences. So grateful for them now, for sure. Yeah. And um you know, back when I went to naturopathic school, there was still, at least in Arizona where I went to school, some of the old timers were chiropractic naturopathic doctors. They'd gone to one of the few chiropractic schools that also offered the dual degree. And, you know, the, their bread and butter was for sure chiropractic care, but they were also really great sources of old naturopathic lore as well. Are any of those schools still around? I don't think so. There used to be, was it the one in Chicago, National, that yes. was the last one that, that oh, okay. offered both, I believe. Well, I think that's where these ones had got their naturopathic degree. But what ended up happening is when naturopathic rebirth, it was rebirthed as National College in Portland, Oregon. Ah, okay. By some people. At that point, my understanding is most of these were dual licensed chiropractor NDs that started that there. And so I, I think all the naturopathic ones are probably self-contained. The, the only one that had a chiropractic connection was University of Bridgeport, which is one of the fairly newer ones, yeah. but it was under the College of Health Sciences and then under the chiropractic wing of that. I taught there for a, a couple semesters and they, we thought of ourselves at that point as like the neglected stepchild of the chiropractic wing of the college. So. Oh, there's much we could say about that and how chiropractors fit in on all of that. But my question to you is, for the listeners, what's the biggest difference between naturopathic medicine and allopathic medicine or traditional medicine? I, I think naturopaths would historically have said um, several things. One would be philosophical outlook, like our, almost how they would understand a problem. 
Um, so as, as an example, when I was going through my naturopathic um, degree time period, I still did Navy reserves. And periodically, once a year, um, as part of the reserves, you'd go two weeks somewhere and be on active duty. And one of mine, I, I finagled a week being in the, um, like trailing around a medical doctor, an MD on a ship. And they felt like what they were doing was treating the cause. Their idea of cause would have just been different than a naturopath's idea of a cause and maybe different than some chiropractic sense of what the ultimate cause. And so I think that's when I say like philosophy principles that, you know, often the way we understand a problem is um, largely at least strongly influenced, if not determined by our paradigm of what's causing it. So nature past, you know, just um, fundamentally their cause has much more, would have been thought of as vitalism back in the day, like this idea that there's some vitalistic force inside, um, and I would say mitochondria are probably the closest to that in modern science. And that if we um, do things to improve that, generally health improves. You know, so it, it was the old timers were more generalist, right? They would work on diet, movement, getting exposure to bright light, sunsets, um, use of hot and cold water. So they, you know, a lot of things now that are the fundamental things that biohackers do for the old vitalistic things. And my guess is they work for the same, you know, general reasons right there. Um, getting, giving signals to our body clock, they're toughening up mitochondria. So anyways, naturopathic would have been traditionally that and more modern naturopathic is very akin to what the functional medicine branch of um, allopathic medicine has emerged, you know, a keen understanding and appreciation of biochemistry, um, you know, and things to just essentially improve physiology so it's much more you know, normalized and resilient. Well, the listeners of this podcast hear me say the words root cause medicine quite often. And I think that's ultimately what you're talking about is finding the source of whatever imbalance is causing the symptomatology. Yes? Yes. Yep. And like I said, it would just, so like one of the things on that time on the ship, their idea of what was causing asthma for the workers on the ship was exposure to the, you know, the fumes, the metal particles, all these other things. And that treating the cause was doing something to relax where I think you and I would say, well, no, the cause is deeper than that, right? It's the exposure to these things. Yeah. And maybe even deeper than that, because not everyone that got exposed suffered from symptoms. Like, you know, the other things these people were doing outside of that exposure window, right? So the root cause can be elusive. And again, I think often it's you know, driven by your sense of your philosophy on things. And, and I think, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, like, you and I would agree much more commonly on the root maybe than a, a more conventionally trained allopathic doctor. Absolutely. And this is the art of medicine, whether it's traditional or naturopathic or chiropractic, it's looking to see where is the root cause and how, how you find it. You know, that's the art of it, which is a beautiful thing. And we all do it differently, which is, you know, can make it a bit frustrating when someone's used to a certain kind of care and then ends up transitioning to a different practitioner. We all do it a little bit differently. You know, Michelangelo didn't paint the same way Da Vinci did, right? This is the yeah. art part of it. But so you study aging. Am I right? Yeah. I, um, so my current position, I'm director of um, product development at a company called Neurohacker Collective. And we started out very focused on the brain. So the, the things 
you know, really over the last five years that I've spent the most time on have been the brain and then the longevity space with kind of side trips into immunity, the gut brain axis, um, you know, lots of pretty cool areas, but for sure the, the, you know, current state of what's going on in longevity would be something that I feel very plugged in on. Yes, interesting. So would you call that geroscience then? Some people call it that, some, you know, anti-aging as others, you know, I think anti-aging among the, the more science-based people in it, they don't love that term because they often they'll think more of, you know, how can we promote healthy aging? They're not thinking at this point of, oh, we'll get people to live an extra 50 years or something. Well, it, it's more yeah. like the quality of that tail end. And, um, you know, and helping more people achieve, say, like 100 years or whatever, you know, like their um, you know, potential is, but then getting to enjoy the, that tail end much more than would commonly be the case currently. So anti-aging medicine or saying anti-aging, those words seem to be associated somehow with our physical appearance, whether we have wrinkles or uh, age spots. So, you know, maybe avoiding that is probably part of saying, okay, this is not about Botox shots or fillers. It's about actually looking at the cells and how healthy they are. Yeah. And I think um, like speaking of just the superficial ex um, experience, like one of the I guess, ways to think about aging is, you know, like, how would we measure it? Or how would we get a sense of it? And so there's almost, you know, different things. So you can look at function, which would be a big part of functional medicine, right? Measuring hormones, biomarkers, other things, and saying, okay, well, these, your, your levels of these are not consistent with a super healthy person. You know, so I think of that as functional age. And one of the devices that we use occasionally at our office it's called an age meter, but it just does a lot of cognitive testing as an example. And as we get older, as just a single example in our brain, our ability to hear the highest tone, like the highest audible pitch decreases each progressively. So if someone functionally can still hear a higher you know, pitch tone at 60 than an average 60 year old functionally, that part of the nervous system is healthier, healthier if that makes sense, right? So there's functional age, then there's you know, an emergence of tests that would be called biological age. So these are things like true age or grim age. Um, they're things that try to look at methylation patterns mostly on our cells and say, um, okay, this, your biological age, so of yourself and of what genes they're expressing looks you know, as a match to your birth age or you look younger. And so you know, that's another way that biological age. But then a um, big one is perceived age. And that's, you know, it, some like if we got 10 random strangers to just look at a picture of me, how old would they think I am? And each of these, well, I, and the last one, I guess, would be felt age. So if I said, you know, Dr. Lovely, how old do you feel? And that's probably the least predictive because people are always like, well, I feel way younger than I am. But, each of, yeah. <laughs> but each of those is predictive in a sense, right? You're, Ideally, you want your functional age, your biological age, and your perceived age all to be younger than your chronological or birth age. And, um, and I think what happens, especially with the perceived age, people focus on the wrong thing. So um, Botox is an example. There's a lot of women, especially that are Botoxed here in Southern California, and my brain doesn't connect that with looking younger. 
at all. It just doesn't, right? Our, that part of our brain that does the perceived age is too ancient to be fooled by something modern, like, oh, we'll just get rid of wrinkles around the forehead or eyes. Wow. So, you know, so perceived age, what's much more important to that part of our brain are things like the glow of the skin and, um, you know, like a, a sense of almost the vitality we get looking at someone. And all that comes, you know, is built from the inside out, from cells and mitochondria. Wow. So I think, you know, we miss the mark going on those super superficial things because that, that our brain just does not translate those into like, oh, this person looks 10 years younger. Yeah. But if they were in way better shape or much more vital, then our brain right away makes that translation. Isn't that fascinating? So you've spoken about a lot of the biopsychosocial aspects of longevity right there in that in that statement. So if we're talking about the things, the levers that we can pull that affect how well we age or our longevity or our health span, as it were. Talk to me about those. What, what are the most important ones? Well, there's two huge camps within the, like the anti-aging community. One would be biased towards thinking that aging is primarily driven by damage accumulation. So a simple sense, as we get older, more and more damage accumulates in our cells, mitochondria, and ultimately our tissues. And that the goal then is to either repair the damage or get rid of things that were damaged and replace them with new growth. Um, and then the other camp would be what's often referred to as programmed aging. So this idea that genes is an example that would be perfectly suited to you know, help humans reproduce, but might have a side effect of eventually you know, causing us to age, wouldn't have been unselected in evolution, right? So we're in a sense programmed to age a bit. And I think there's actually um, elements of truth in both camps, but fundamentally in terms of then executing on those things, the currently I would say the damage repair and removing accumulated damage is winning the race in terms of things we can do. And then I think a lot of lifestyle things slow the progression of age. So sleep as an example, right? Like we know now pretty definitively sleep is doing all kinds of wonderful things while we're sleeping, right? It's, you know, there's this thing called the glymphatic system that is almost like detoxing or cleansing our brain each night when we're in deep sleep. And the ability to get there and have this process go on is strongly associated with having better memory as we get older, like not having that age-related brain issues. And um, in terms of the damage accumulation, the you know, I think the most advanced thing in the pipeline are what are called senolytics currently. Yes, please tell us about those. Yeah, so the, the analogy I often use would be like, you know, for the audience listening, imagining a plant. I can see a beautiful one in the background while I'm speaking to you right now. But now imagine like one of those leaves started to yellow a little bit, right? So it's no longer as vital as, you know, a super healthy leaf. And what happens in our tissues is cells, are constantly stressed by different things. That's, you know, no problem. They're, they have built in, you know, almost software programs to deal with stress. So the first thing invariably, no matter what the stress, maybe it's, you know, inadequate nutrition or radiation or, you know, chemicals, cells will invariably always respond initially by you know, 
upregulating things like antioxidant defenses. You know, they'll make more glutathione. They'll, they'll try to do things to prevent damage. And oxidative stress is fundamentally, no matter what the stress is, some degree of that translates into cells as oxidative stress. And if stress is more than, than can be adapted to by that, then often some things will get damaged, right? Mucked up a little bit. And what inside our cells tends to get damaged are what are called organelles. So organelles are like the things inside cells, like the factories that make our genes, mitochondria, those would be organelles. And so what most typically happens is the protein components of those get misfolded or they get you know dysfunctional. And so that's the next sequence of what cells do is they, it's called autophagy, but they'll find these damaged, misfolded proteins and recycle them. And autophagy is a big reason that, you know, the, some of the people that focus on healthy aging do things like intermittent fasting or periodic fast. Um, and then if stress is even more than that, then what happens often is the whole cell gets somewhat damaged. And at that point, you know, recycling things inside it just wouldn't be sufficient. So one of two things typically happens. If the stress is crazy severe, so you know, you're bitten by a brown recluse spider or a snake bite, right? You'll get necrosis. Like that's kind of an unplanned death of, of cells. Um, if a cell has you know, less traumatic damage, but still a lot, then it would go through what's called apoptosis. And that's a, like a intentional cell death. It's programmed cells how they think about it. But in, in advance of the cell dying, it's an orderly process. And apoptosis, and again, I'll mention your plant, comes from a Greek word that means literally falling off in the sense of a fruit falling off a tree or a leaf falling off the plant, right? So it's the natural just falling away process where the cell, um, you know, I guess literally would be something that would fall out of our tissues and then be replaced by a new cell. And if the damage isn't quite enough to cause apoptosis, but more than autophagy, then what happens is senescence. And senescence fundamentally means the cell is no longer able to divide or replace itself. So it's a cell that's not living. It, it would be in the plant analogy, like a yellow leaf on your plant that for whatever reason did not fall off, did not go through that natural process. And so what scientists have found, and most of this started recently in 2011 and since then, is that as organisms get older, senescent cells accumulate in multiple tissues. And they've now been linked to almost, almost any health condition you can name that's worse with aging, senescent cells play some role in, which makes sense. This would be naturopathic principle. The health of tissues is dependent on the health of the cells in those tissues. So imagine the plant in your, your home or your garden. Now, you know, it goes from, you know, your age 20, every leaf on it, vibrant green, you know, you're 30, oh, this one's yellowing a little bit. You know, now you're 50, 60, like, wow, like why are a third of the leaves yellow and not, you know, falling off the plant? And so as a gardener, what you would do is prune those away. And the goal of pruning in, as a gardener would be one, by removing that, um, you know, poor, like unhealthy leaf, it makes room now on the plant for new growth for like a more vibrant leaf. 
to the yellowing leaves for sucking up resources, even though they're not contributing to the health of the planet, there's plant, they're still using a lot of resources. And so the idea of senescent cells accumulating is very akin to that. Um, I, as, as an example, it was one study in baboons that found out by late in their life, about 15% of the cells in various tissues were senescent. So they were taking up phase, but not contributing to health. And one of the other things senescent cells do is they give off a lot of compounds into the environment around them that can cause other cells nearby to be dysfunctional. But it's sometimes why they're thought of as zombie cells. They can cause other nearby things to almost become senescent as well. Um, and again, going back to the plant metaphor, that would be common, right? If you have a, you know, a yellow leaf that you don't prune away, it will attract pests and other things that can then spread to nearby leaves. So what happened in 2015 is scientists at Mayo Clinic and at um, Scripps Research, Scripps Institute of Aging in Florida um, found that there were certain compounds if given to animals acted to cause these stuck senescent cells to finally go through this natural falling off process and be removed from cells. And when that happened, it rejuvenated tissue, the older animals became much more biologically healthy. So they you know, functionally started to do things consistent with just being much healthier and almost younger animals. So that um, research led to that, the Mayo and Scripps naming compounds that do that as senolytics. So, um, senolytics you know, for the audience would be fundamentally think of it as things that help these stocks and us and cells in our tissues finally complete that journey to where they fall off and make room in our tissues for you know stem cells to create new healthier younger versions of ourselves so that was a lot of information so hopefully yeah, but, I didn't overwhelm no, the audience it was great. I was thinking if I need to have a paper written, I'm going to ask you to come and help me because that was beautiful. <laughs> you brought it all together. I don't think I could ask a question about it, but I'm going to try. So senescent cells are part of this whole inflammaging thing that's being talked about. Is that correct? Yeah, they're, they're arguably the single most important factor driving it. When I said they secrete a lot of things into the environment around them, most of those we would think of as inflammatory cytokines and other inflammatory compounds. Okay. And so, then what, so like the original work on inflammaging, they looked at, it was someone that looked at, at liver tissue. And fundamentally, if you gave, you know, liver tissue from a 70 year old and a 25 year old to, you know, a pathologist to look at, it would be super easy for them to tell which one's the 70 year old and which one's the 25 year old. And a lot of that is because the older liver tissue will have been infiltrated with immune cells, mostly macrophages. And so that, that originated the idea of inflammaging. And what senescent cells do is they call in a lot of immune cells into the area where they are. And often because of the signals they're putting out, those immune cells just stay chronically there, causing, instead of doing the cleanup and regeneration that the immune system should do, you get this low level, you know, what's now called inflammation, you know, low level ongoing immune system activation. 
And that cellular cleanup is meant to be done via things like the glymphatic system, which my podcast listeners are familiar with that because we do talk about that. It's the dishwasher of the brain is how I refer to it. And, or at least how I've heard it referred to um, and pass that along, but also autophagy, apoptosis, which you have mentioned. Now we do talk a lot about uh, intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating on this podcast and the benefits of it. And, um, and autophagy is probably my favorite of those benefits. So what, what's, and you may have said this, but you know, hey, I, we were down a rabbit hole, so it was great. But <laughs> tell me again, please, is autophagy not enough or the natural process of cell death not enough to take care of these senescent cells? Where, why are they hanging out? Yeah, so autophagy would be the way I think of it. So autophagy, senescence, these are stress response programs, right, that cells have. Um, autophagy would be the one enacted when stress has left and can still be repaired or when damage from the stress is left and can still be repaired. So it's an anti-senescence. So the idea of autophagy is let's clean things up before it gets so bad that we execute senescence and stop this cell from dividing and making new copies. Senescence, at some point, the damage is so severe that the cell, and this is you know me speaking for the cell, but ultimately I'm just guessing, but scientists think it's so that the cell is damaged enough, it doesn't want to risk making copies of itself that would be damaged. So it's, senescence freezes it as it is. And then what should happen with a senescent cell, and this would classically be the norm in a 20-year-old, right? So as an example, a 20-year-old decides, well, I'm gonna do way more intense exercise today than I usually do they'll make some senescent cells as part of that. It's absolutely normal, healthy. But what would happen if we looked, you know, a couple of days to a week later, they would all have been cleared out of the tissue. And by cleared out, what I mean is the senescent cells would have come in, called some immune system in to help, you know, repair and regenerate from the, you know, more extensive exercise than that person was used to. And then the senescent cells would have been frozen but they would still have been gone through apoptosis. And the ones that didn't, the immune system would find them and gobble them up and take them out, right? So a young person would make senescent cells naturally, but their half-life is really short. They do a job and then they're gone. But what happens with aging, and this is for a variety of reasons, is we would, you know, I'm 61. If I did that same, like, step up and exercise that I'm not used to and stress out my tissues myself, I would make senescent cells, but more of them would linger. A week later, they'd still be there. So they would have done their job and not gone through apoptosis. The stragglers, the immune system may have missed because of something called immunosenescence, but basically, um, you know, our immune system becomes less great at finding stress cells as we get older. And so there's a combination of reasons, but the main reason that senescent cells accumulate progressively as we age is the ones that are lingering. So I, I tend to differentiate transient versus lingering. Young pre people make them, but they're transient. They do their job, they're gone. As we get older, we have more of, the, of these lingering ones that fundamentally didn't fall off the plant. And the reason they linger is thought to be a combination of things. One is they just, we make more variants of senescent cells as we get older that have what are called senescent cell anti-apoptotic pathways, super complex word, but SCAP is how they 
um, refer to them. But fundamentally, what that means is these variants of senescent cells have figured out a way not to go through apoptosis. So they resist that process. Okay. And senolytics are usually targeted at renormalizing that SCAP network. So they finally do go through apoptosis. So that's one reason they, they're fundamentally resistant to going through the process that they should. Another is that idea that the immune system's just not great at finding the stragglers. So more stragglers build up. And then the third reason, or a third reason, is that um, idea of you know, sending out these inflammatory markers. So this is called secondary senescence, but just like a yellowing leaf on a plant can drop past, but then pop to another leaf and cause that to now yellow, senescent cells can cause nearby cells to become senescent that otherwise would have been healthy. So that's called secondary senescence or sometimes the bystander effect. Um, and then the last reason gets into that idea of programmed aging, that our genes are just programmed to create more senescent cells as we get older. And you can find evidence that supports all four of those. And my guess is it's not one of them, it's some combination of all. But for the audience, the long story short is predictably, you know, no matter what you're doing to stay healthy, you'll progressively accumulate some senescent cells in various tissues as the decades march on. Okay, and if we've got that, then what do we do about the senescent cells? How do we manage this, please? Yeah, so that's, so that's where I think that, you know, you need the gardener or someone to come in and prune them away. And the, that brings us to this idea of senolytics. So senolytics specifically are things that like renormalize that gap network, that ability for the senescent cell to finally go through this journey to falling off um, apoptosis. And so the original two that Mayo studied and named this category for, one's a chemotherapeutic drug called dasatinib. It's used mostly in blood cancers. And one's quercetin, which I'm sure you've used you know, through your practice. Um, it's been you know, a dietary supplementing quercetin. Um, the, the queer part of it comes from the word oak, right? So it would have been something that accumulated you know, in leaves of oak, bark of oak. Um, and what's been interesting is that several of the most um, promising senolytic compounds that would be in the dietary supplement or plant world instead of a pharmaceutical drug are things that would predominate in bark and leaves. You know, so fisetin is another one. Luteolin is another, and these luteolin, quercetin, fisetin, these are all yellow pigments. That's what they were used like way before, you know, dietary supplement companies exist. If you went back, you know, to the middle ages, they would have used these compounds to create dyes. So um, luteolin, the lute, that's, I think it's Latin for yellow. Um, um, Physetin comes from a German word that was a yellow dye, like piece and holes or something like that. And so um, my intuition, and I could be completely wrong at this, but the, when humans evolutionarily were exposed to times of famine, we would actually eat whatever was in our environment, right? Grass, leaves, bark, just to have something to fill our stomach. And my guess is that when we drastically increase the amount of these, um, particular flavonoids in our diet, it triggers an evolutionary program that says, oh, famine is imminent or famine's already here. Let's get rid of everything that's not necessary. And so 
fundamentally what's happening with these plant compounds when you consume them, they, they're working on what are called nutrient sensing pathways inside cells. They're sensing the nutrients in the environment and then toggling the cell saying, okay, you know, should I linger? Should I go through apoptosis? Well, the environment's not great. You know, let's let's flick the switch and we'll, you know, we're already damaged. Let's, you know, finish the journey. Falling off. So I think that's what, you know, part of the reason why they work. And what's interesting is a lot of these compounds, so all three I named also support autophagy. Because autophagy also has an element of nutrient sensing. If if a cell senses again, and this is why you would do something like, you know, a period like the fasting mimicking diet, Walter Longo's um, three to five day plan, or even, you know, the intermittent fasting, the time restricted eating, the idea is to affect nutrient sensing in a way that convinces our cells to clean themselves up. And what typically, you know, is thought to happen is the cells most in need of damage or things, or I'm sorry, clean up, or the, the, the gunked up proteins most um, damaged inside a cell, somehow the intelligence in that cellular network says, okay, these are the least important for our function. Let's make a priority of recycling these. So autophagy and um, senescence would have a lot in common. It's just the degree of stress the cells undergone and the degree of damage that's occurred. So you have taken this information and uh, created a, a product from Neurohacker Collective or at Neurohacker Collective uh, with the principles you've just talked about. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We call it quality analytic. Our all of our products are um, qualia is the name, and the idea of qualia is um, qualia is a philosophical term that just has to do with the idea of your subjective experience from your senses. So. You know, um, like classic thing, you know, I'm, I'm sighted, my quality of my environment would be different than an unsighted person, someone that's blind, as an example. But quality in part, because we wanted our products to be experienced, we wanted them to be felt. And so with quality of Senolytic, yeah, we took this, um, you know, like, you know, all this pioneering work on senescent cells and Senolytics and created a product that is intended to take two days a month. And during those two days, you do a pretty high dose of the compounds I've mentioned along with some other ones. Um, and the goal is fundamentally that those two days a month, you act like the gardener or these, you know, these supplements help um, your body act like the gardener that goes in and finally prunes away some of these senescent cells. So have you, uh, uh, maybe a better way to ask the question is, I'd love to hear what your own experience has been taking these uh, senolytics. Yeah, so I, I'm going on well, probably like 15 months because I get to take things before they go on sale since I help design and make them. And, and honestly, I test them out before, you know, I would ever, and that we invariably do some small study before we go to market. But our journey is, you know, we research, we create a small batch, me and several other people I can convince trial it. And then, you know, if, if we feel like, oh, this is, you know, both safe and, um, you know, doing what we hope, then we move to a bigger study and eventually to market. So my personal experience, um, I mostly focused on two things that kind of like post-exercise, you know, knee inflammation, stiffness, soreness that, you know, for me, 
I get a lot more of it 61 than I did when I was 30, especially if I do squats or things like that. So, so that's gone way down. And then the other thing for me, so one of the things that happens as we age is our muscles um, akin to insulin resistance, but it would be called anabolic resistance. So insulin resistance is this idea that you know, our tissues don't respond as sensitively to insulin. Anabolic resistance would be that same thing, but to anabolic signals like you know, more protein or weightlifting. So it's you know, very well known that as we get older, our muscles don't respond as well to the things that stimulated health and growth when we were younger. And you know, that's fundamentally one of the biggest problems with staying functionally healthy as we age is that you know, muscle quality piece. So several now animal experience experiments have found that anabolic resistance is a big reason and that senescent cells contribute to that in older animals and that the last piece, if you do senolytics to clear them out, then the muscles respond much more sensitively to these anabolic signals. So the other piece I've paid attention to is tracking my workouts. Am I still getting stronger? Are my muscles, you know, qualitatively like still able to grow when I do things like, you know, have good workouts? And, um, and so those have been the main things I've looked at. But a good friend, he, he's also a chiropractor, as a matter of fact, lives in Florida. He um, reached out fairly recently. He's been taking analytics since it launched a year ago, June. And he did the um, pace of aging test through two diagnostics, which is a DNA methylation. But instead of you know predicting how old you are, it's producing the rate or reporting the rate that it's predicting your aging. So his rate of aging was already excellent when he did his test a year ago before polycenolytic. I think it was about a 0.9. So he was aging at 0.9 years for every you know one calendar year. But when he redid it recently, and he's done two things in the last year, polycenolytic once a month. And then the other thing um, he's been doing the um, the fasting mimicking diet, um, Prolon is the brand for that. Um, I think once a quarter. But anyways, his new one was like 0.68. So he was wow. just like, oh, you wow. know, something's really working. I'm going to keep this up. And, he, and during this last year, he's launched a website, a book. He's had, in, in his words, a pretty stressful year from you know, the commitments he's been um, honoring. So, um, and one of the things I try to communicate to people is, Denethin cells are very much a threshold issue. They, they don't necessarily accumulate equally in all our tissues as the decades pass. Like some people, it may be their joints. Joints are a classic area where senescin cells cause a lot of problem because um, the connective tissue, um, fibroblasts would be uh, the classic connective tissue cell. Those re reproduce quickly and are very prone to becoming senescent. So someone that's already having, because of the passage of time, issues with you know, joint stiffness or discomfort, they're likely to you know, experience a senolytic helping with that. Someone that's their same age that, that doesn't have that issue, um, you know, obviously they're not gonna feel a senolytic in the same way, but maybe cognitively, you know, they're having more mood challenges or something than you know, they would have had 10 years ago. They may experience, you know, an improvement in their mood. We saw that in one of our small studies. So one of the interesting things of senescent cells is again this idea to me of like the, 
you know, we want to keep them below that tipping point where they're causing a tissue now to be dysfunctional and cause them more noticeable problems. So, you know, one thing for your audience is, um, you know, I would just tell people don't expect necessarily that you'll see something. If a plant has a couple of yellow leaves, you know, would the plant, you know, is the plant still you know, able to survive grow? Yeah. But, you know, would we want to, you know, get rid of those before two becomes three, three becomes six. And so the, like my goal personally is to periodically prune and periodically is once a month, just to make sure that my tissues are staying below that threshold where they might then contribute to a problem. Cause it's a lot easier to prevent problems than fix them is, you know, and you would know that. And I'm sure most of the audience having, you know, the people um, trying to help them with their challenges would, um, appreciate that as well. Right. So we've got a different um, measure, but depending on where the, the weakest link is, and we've all got that bio uh, individuality where, you know, for you, it might be post-workout muscle pain. For me, it was joint pain. That's how I knew. That's how I figured out 10 years ago that I needed to not be eating gluten, right? So we've all got something, but for uh, something I'm very interested in for my own uh, prevention uh, due to family history, but also I talk about a lot on this podcast is protecting a woman's brain function specifically at you know midlife and beyond because neurodegeneration tends to affect women um, disproportionately uh, to men for sure. And so how do, first of all, how does this cellular aging that you've been talking to us about affect the brain? And, you know, what are your levers that you're, you're going to suggest we pull around that? Yeah. So the, the brain, so first the brain has more than one, like we almost always invariably think of neurons when you think of the brain, right? Like these are the things that make your neurotransmitters, your dopamine and serotonin, right? And neurons, so just like a quick detour, cells, you'll often see like this if you Google it, that the average life of a cell in a human is about seven years. And then at that point, cells just go through old age and die. They go through apoptosis, right? So it's completely normal that we're churning cells. Um, we have billions and billions of cells go through apoptosis every day. But some, that seven-year average is misleading because some cells turn over really quickly. You know, blood cells, it's every two months. Intestinal cells, every couple of days. Liver cells, it's about you know, one to two years. But heart cells, like 40 years. Um, muscle cells, I think it's seven. Fat cells, like 14. But neurons were built for a lifetime. We're, we're not supposed to be turning over neurons. The, the ones we, we can, they can change their connections to other neurons, right? Neuroplasticity. But we want to keep neurons from becoming damaged and dying, right? So autophagy is crazy important to keep neurons healthy. But then there's all support cells in the brains as well. So these are your astrocytes and um, microglia and things like that. And those ones do make new versions of themselves and so um, can become senescent. And what is thought, whether it's, you know, like mood disorders, like, you know, depression, your anxieties, or PTSD or chronic pain, that all of those things share some of the same underlying you know, functional issues in the brain, often you know, low-level inflammation, issues with neuroplasticity, um, brain energetics and not making enough ATP and these other compounds important. And that um, synaptin cells for sure impact all those things. So um, 
you know, I, I wouldn't use the word cause because cause can be elusive, but almost again, like anything you think of with aging that tends to trend worse, then FN cells have at least some role. Um, and so in brain aging, they would you know, similarly have a, um, you know, a big role so far. In, in animal experiments, a very big role. In human experiments, there's still ongoing for that. And then I think, um, you know, the what to do, you know, so I can just tell you what I do, right? I take our qualiacinolytic once a month. Um, through the rest of the month, I think it's important to do lifestyle behavior and potentially supplement things that help our immune system. Because at the end of the day, that's what should be cleaning up the straggler, the nuts and cells before they accumulate. And, um, you know, as we know, the immune system just struggles often as we get older. Um, and lifestyle plays a huge role in that, right? Not getting enough sleep, too much stress, you know, body cloth disruption because we're not getting light. Like foundational things almost just have disproportionate ripple effects, whether it's, you know, on being able to, you know, like you mentioned with the lymphatic system, clean up our brain. If we don't get into that great deep sleep and that first sleep cycle of the night kind of miss the boat on getting that nightly detox. So, you know, I, I think of supplements as an important, you know, complementary piece, but I know personally going back 20 years or more, sleep has just routinely been the thing that an average person most struggles to realize one, its importance. And then if they do realize how important often, you know, there's just a lot of people that struggle with sleep issues. So trying to improve sleep, I think, is super important and, and often a challenge when women get into this, you know, perimenopausal, menopausal age. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think stress, you know, a huge category, right? But Salier, who was one of the big stress researchers, he's the pioneer, the, the grandfather of the idea, eventually, you know, in his writing at least, suggested that what he found is mental emotional stress was by far the, the largest sorts of stress in, you know, in his experiments. And I tend to use a metaphor that goes back to a game my siblings and I had in the late 60s called The Last Draw. Um, but if you Google the camel game or last, the last draw game, you'd see it. But it was just this little plastic camel. Each um, over the back, there was a bucket on one side of the back, a bucket on the other, two teams, and you'd spin this wheel you know, maybe it pointed to blue. And so you'd have to put one blue straw in your bucket and the different color straws, some were, you know, heavier than others. And, you know, at some point, one team would put the last straw in the basket collapse. So that's, when I think of stress, I think of the, the camel game, right? Like we all, the, the camel has some degree of resilience, right? That his back can carry so many straws. We, we don't know how, you know, like your resilience may be different than mine. If I'm sleep deprived, mine's less than it would be if I'm adequately sleep. But all of us have a certain amount of straws we're, you know, walking around with today. Some we, you know, some we share because, you know, maybe EMF, the environment, factors that, you know, aren't really easy to do anything about. But some are things we can do something about. And at the end of the day, none of us will ever know how close we are to that last straw until it's put in our bucket and then that's when health collapses right and then what happens then just getting rid of that that cause right that one last straw usually isn't going to be sufficient to restore the camel's back right? you have to like clean out a lot of straws now so 
when I think of just, you know, me personally and health in general, it's what can I be doing to keep my basket, you know, the load in that as light as possible so that if inadvertently, you know, a big straw gets added in, then I'm not going to collapse and I'll have time to deal with that straw. And I just think you know, that mental emotional is one of the heaviest straws that we have to own as human beings, right? So if we can do things to recognize when we have like something big that's weighing us down in those areas and take, you know, usually requires taking some action, right? You know, maybe it's working with a counselor, maybe it's making a decision, but removing that straw, right? Because that frees a lot of weight in the bucket. And now we're more resilient when something inadvertently um, comes our way. And so, you know, we started this conversation off talking about the cause. You know, I think often we blame that last straw as the cause, which is fair, right? It caused the collapse. But, you know, the truth was there was lots of other straws in the basket <laughs> that, yes. you know, that had they not been there, that cause would not have caused the issue. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. We're both from generations where we were taught to sort of buck up and not talk about things, not deal with things, not, you know, especially things like mental and emotional stressors, right? And as far as stress, stress management goes, suck it up, buttercup, right? Yeah. So it's so interesting to see how our children and our grandchildren, our nieces, et cetera, um, and the younger generations are dealing with this far better than our generations did. Well, I think you know, better and worse in some ways, right? I think, um, you know, like um, there's an aspect of, you know, our thoughts create our reality, right? So if, so when I say mental, emotional, you and I could be exposed to the same thing. So like it, when I was in naturopathic school, I remember an example, um, I think it was an MD teaching us a course in radiology, but it was a medical doctor. And he, you know, I'm going to, you know, memories, you know, not great, great 30 years, but, you know, my recollection of the story was that he started it off and saying, you know, I don't know much about nature paths, you know, I'm an MD, but I'm super excited, you know, as I teach you this to learn more about what you do, right? So I took it as a compliment personally, right? Like how he said, and at the end of the class, one of my um, classmates was really angry and I'm like, well, help me understand like what happened. And she's like, well, he insulted us. I'm like, wow, I didn't hear that. Like, what did, what did he say? And he said, he referred to us as naturopaths instead of naturopathic doctors. So she took that as him belittling our profession. I, I, I call our, us naturopaths. I, I, instead, I focused on like, I'm super excited to learn more about what you guys do, <laughs> right? So we both had the, the same experience or exposure, but we created different experiences for ourselves. So I think one of the things that in the current world I worry about a, a bit is that the stories we're telling ourselves, and this can be all generations, aren't productive stories, right? We're finding opportunities to feel victimized or to feel insulted that really didn't exist. And so you know, I know my personal goal is to be a good storyteller for myself. If some if something happens, if someone does something in my environment, like cut them a break, like assume they had a different intention rather than, oh, why did this person insult me? Because if I, you know, if I react like and give them the benefit of the doubt, tell a better story about what they did, I'm not creating much of a straw for myself. But if a day or two later I create this negative story and I'm still stewing over why they 
you know, cause this perceived insult, like I am carrying a straw. So I think one of the things I'm definitely, um, it's not a matter of simply being like, I'm going to push back. I'm not going to suck it up. I'm going to like, are you sure you're not creating the straw? Yes. Right? Like your interpretation, because that's not serving any. And yeah. so I think the first thing for me is like, you know, understanding the brain's very biased to do these, you know, types of things where, oh, it's not me, it's you. And like, I responded emotionally, like who caused it? And this, this is an old Wayne Dyerism, and it was in a, one of his um, presentations I saw once, but he starts it off and he asks the audience, okay, what happens when you squeeze an orange? You know, and the audience eventually yells, oh, well, you know, juice comes out. And then he says, yeah, well, why? Did the juice come up? And everyone yells, well, because you squeezed the orange. And he you know, pauses for a minute. He's like, no, it came out because the juice was already there, right? If you squeeze an orange without juice, there's no juice, right? And it's that combination. And I guess, you know, at the end of the day, what I worry about is, um, you know, the world's going to squeeze us, right? And we tend to blame that for, you know, our juice coming out. And my goal, and I'm not always perfect at this is to understand it at the end of the day, well, someone else might have been squeezed and no juice came out. If juice came out of me, you know, that's my responsibility. And I think that piece maybe we're not as good, you know, at as, you know, I don't we think we've ever been great as humans at it in my life, but I think we're actually maybe worse now than we used to be. It's just too easy to blame someone else. I love this uh, orange analogy. That's great. That's great. I'm always up for a Wayne Dyer analogy. Uh, but yeah. This is what my husband would call, don't start none, won't be none. <laughs> yeah. Just to make it a, as simple as possible. Now, Dr. Kelly, I didn't tell you this, but you are uh, a very special to this podcast because you're the first guy that has been featured in 100 episodes. Wow. <laughs> So I want to thank you so much for the science literacy lessons we got today, because I feel read in on these uh, senescent cells and the process of cellular aging in a way that I just wasn't before. You can read the science of it, but you just made it so approachable. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for being our first Not Your Mother's Menopause dude, Dr. Dude. <laughs> well, thank you. What an honor. Uh, many have approached me, but you're the first one to pass muster. So uh, thank you. And and this this interview did not disappoint in any way. I think I'm just so grateful for you sharing your information, for you doing the research and taking that information and making these beautiful products that are very usable. I like that. I know I have a gift package on the way to me, so I'm excited to give these guys a try. And I'll report to my listeners uh, my experience with it. And um, uh, I thank you for, we've got a, a coupon code to share as well for anyone who's interested in the products. But um, I always like to end these conversations by asking you this question, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self? Um, so I think the, the, the main thing, and this would go back to um, more understanding my dad. So my dad, you know, I was a um, child of the 70s, so to speak, right? He had, I lived you know, near 
the coast outside of Boston. My dad worked in the city, you know, high-end professional job, long, crazy commute, God bless him. Um, and he would come home at the end of the day, you know, he'd get there at 6.30. He often was fairly, you know, grumpy, right? Like, you know, we had to, you know, definitely knew we had to walk on tippy toes when he came home. And, you know, my younger self would have, you know, like blamed my dad for that, right? Like, you know, it was like something about his character where the way I currently think about it is, you know, our brain only has so many resources, you know, we're going to have more typically, you know, early in the day than late at day, right? Because we use en mental energy and other things up the day progresses. And so the best version of ourselves often is going to be present somewhere early in our day. And by the end of the day, we've used up all those resources and often need an opportunity to recharge. But it's not about our character. It's just fundamentally we're resource, you know, mental energy deficient at that point in time. And so my story now that I tell about my dad is completely different, right? It's like, oh, you know, my, my dad wasn't this, you know, grumpy, irritable guy. He was someone that, you know, loved us so much that he did this crazy commute, worked really hard, came back at the end of the day, pretty, you know, mental energy depleted. And, you know, and I recall, like, if we gave him an opportunity to shine his shoes and you know, just fiddle with his hobbies that, you know, by 7.38, he was a fun guy to watch TV with, right? He just needed that opportunity to recharge. So I, I guess long story short, it would be, you know, what I recognize, but what I hope the audience maybe will do as well is realize I love ones, if they're not showing up their best version of themselves towards the end of their day, not their fault. It's, you know, they often just need, like my dad needed, an opportunity for his brain just to recharge, to you know, fundamentally shift energy that was here and didn't get used to an area that had been overpassed for the day. So, um, you know, if if we're not showing up and being our best self at the end of the day, you know, that's where things like nootropics come in. They, those often will help, right? They'll be things that give more resources so that we have more juice to pull on for the entire day. And for those of us that are, you know, like me. With my dad, you know, tell ourselves a better story about that because the the truth is, the better story is you know more likely accurate, and it's you know I think it's important to be generous, right? To you know understand that often things we're blaming on the other person, it's more the, their circumstances than their character. So that's that would be it, and you know with my dad, that's the story I tell. So I have you know um, lovely memories of him and you know have you know compared to the younger version of myself i just think i tell a much more generous but probably more accurate story about my dad uh, as you said earlier in this conversation be a good storyteller and i think you just gave a beautiful example so thank you you're welcome and dr greg kelly thank you for joining us today on the not your mother's menopause podcast it's my pleasure thanks for having me such a wonderful conversation with Dr. Gregory Kelly. I really enjoyed it. And I asked him to come back to speak to us in the new year. So be watching for more content from him and the Neurohacker Collective. Please, if you want to find out more information about their amazing supplements um, and blends, and Dr. Kelly is the formulator of these blends, please go to www.neurohackercollective.com slash not your mothers. 
And then you can enter the code NOTYOURMOTHERS in capital letters for 15% off of all of their Qualia formulations. I have been taking the night formulation and the mind formulation and I like them a lot. (laughs) So please go and check out the neurohackercollective.com slash NOTYOURMOTHERS. Mothers. And finally, just a reminder to sign up for the Brain Health webinar coming up on September 9th at noon. That's going to be live on Zoom. And the link is below in the show notes. If you want a deeper dive on any of the podcast episodes, you can check out my page on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Dr. Fiona Lovely on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Fiona Lovely, and finally on Facebook at Not Your Mother's Menopause Podcast. As always, I'm so grateful for the time that I get to spend with you every couple of weeks, and thank you for listening. I know you get to choose what you spend your time doing, and I'm just so grateful. Today, it was a little bit with me. I hope you have a fantastic day. Talk soon. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your healthcare provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your healthcare provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.